Hi, this is Bruce Hamburger, former assistant at Seton Hall back in the day. You're listening to the Left Coast Pirates. Morton will try to go all the way. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is January 9th, 2022. What a heck of a week we had, and Mike, I hope this serves as a lesson to you. Serves as a lesson to me. Where are you going with this? What well, happened at the end of the last episode, Mike? I went out on a limb. I put my name to it. I said we were going 2-0. You're hamming and hawing. It'd be nice if we went at least 1-1, one one, but I don't know. That is not what I said. Mike, put your name to a prediction. Be a man for a change. Did I not come out of the non-conference and have us at like 10-0 in the next, you know, like three months or something like that? And I then said, what happened? We went on pause. What? What's wrong with you, Michael? I said without knowing who you're going to have on your roster for the upcoming week and not even knowing if UConn was going to come to the table and play with their COVID issues, it was hard to get a grasp of giving you a prediction because who knew that Ike was going to come back? We were going into the Butler game with the same eight guys. You forgot the sly Kevin Willard? Oh, Kevin and his ways of not telling anybody what's going on here. But if I'm not mistaken, I told you this team needs to find a way to get to 2-0, to get back to 500 in conference play if they want to have loftier expectations. And if there was a lesson to be learned, I feel like I've already learned this lesson over and over again in past years with this team. If you think about it, go back now almost seven years, and every time that we say that this team has had their backs up against the wall, maybe minus the exception of last year's stretch run, have they not come out guns a-blazing, swinging haymakers to try to hang in there, the miracle at the Rock, big wins at Butler to punch their ticket? Every time that you think this team is down and out, they have found a way to put together big wins for a collective week or a ticket-punching Uh, entry into the dance to add to their resume by coming out in the win column. So, Tommy, I am not surprised that a Kevin Willard team found a way with all my doubts and concerns to get back to where they needed to be. You enjoyed that miracle at the rock name, didn't you, Mike? And I thought I had had no legs. I thought I had no legs, and then three years later or four years later, it's still carrying some cachet here. I don't, I don't You're know. just mad because I introduced that on Hall Line, not here at the LCP podcast. That's the problem. Hey, look, all, all I know is great week. I'm going to plug myself here. A little birthday celebration for me. Happy uh, Saturday. birthday, Mikey. 
That's all I ask for. My kids ask me, what do you want for a birthday? I guess a, a big hug from my kids and a pirate victory against UConn. And the gods blessed me. I, I can't complain. Well, then you're going to be uber happy this week, Mike, because this week on the podcast, we will review the wins at Butler and against UConn, and we will preview the upcoming games against DePaul and Marquette. But first, Seton Hall 71, Butler 56. Another slow start left the Pirates trailing 16 to 9, six minutes into the game. But then they woke up and went on a 15-2 run that allowed them to build an eight-point halftime lead 34-26. In the second half, the Bulldogs cut the lead to five or six on several occasions, threatening to get back in the game. Yet each and every time the Hall had an answer of their own and and pulled away down the stretch for a comfortable 15-point business-like road victory. All right, Tommy, box score on this one. Jared Roden back in the box score, leading the Pirates 17 points, 3-7 of seven from distance. Alexis Yetna still doing the work in the paint, 14 points, 10 rebounds, and Bryce Aiken also stepped up with 12 points and seven assists as he got the starting nod on this evening. Opposite the Pirates, you had Bryce Golden with 19 points on seven and nine from the floor. The man could not be stopped. And Bryce Enzi chipped in 12 points and five rebounds. You know, collectively, both teams shot 41% from the floor. Seton Hall and Butler made seven and six three-point shots respectively. But Seton Hall held the advantages throughout in essentially almost every other category, plus 10 in free throws made, plus 11 in rebounding, plus nine in points off turnovers, a 12 to nothing fast break point advantage, and also 16 to nothing in bench scoring. Like I said, Tommy, like you said in the recap, business-like performance. And in terms of the turning point tonight, I'm going to sit there and go unconventional on you and not say the 15-2 to two run that flipped the lead in the first half. I'm going to go with the two Jared Roden three-pointers early in the second half. On two occasions, you had Jair Bolden and Bryce Golden hit back-to-back threes to cut the lead to five each time, and the Butler crowd was just chomping at the bit to get back into this game and rally the troops, and both times back down the court, Roden answers with a three-pointer of his own to push the lead back to eight, and it essentially kept the crowd out of it early in the second half and never let Butler kind of get jump-started and on even footing with the Hall. You know, they had a couple other moments where there were big plays made, but they were kind of kept at bay for from that point on, if you ask me. So people are going to say the 15-2 to two run, and I'm going to say no. Jared Roden got back on track with those two big three-pointers in a – what typically is a very hostile road environment. You know, and every time he hit one of those threes, I was just hoping for one of those inside the huddle moments in the Butler side so Laval Jordan can just say, how come he only hits those threes against us, man? Like he did a few years ago. I was just dying for it. Come on, Laval, give me some gold. 
But it's true. Jared had not been hitting him in the last few games up until this recent outburst of the three that he hit. So, I mean, he wasn't even attempting three-pointers coming into this game over his last few. So, Jordan's got to be sitting there. What's it about Jared Roden and, and uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse? He also hit the, the big one where Powell deferred to him. Did he not a couple of years before that? Hankel's not got that, you know, mojo against us like most teams. I know everyone's like, welcome to historic Hankel, yada, yada, yada. Seton Hall seems to play well out there. But you know who played really well? Finally back, the big man, Ike. And he logged 28 minutes and he came big. Eight points, three boards, two big blocks. And, you know, after after he checked in, it was like Butler was like, yo, we're not attacking the paint anymore. We're just going to step back. Keep shooting that three, Bryce NC. I mean, Ike is just a big threat in the middle. We kind of take it for granted, right? You know, we've missed Ike for the last few games, and you kind of forget that sometimes he doesn't, uh, you know, splash the numbers in the box score, but they, he makes a psychological impact on the opponent and the way they attack the basket or or run their offensive scheme. I had no problem with Enzi stepping out and shooting the number of threes that he took. But, Tom, you glossed over the eight points in the box score. How often are we sitting there going, Ike Obiagu with eight points? And on top of that, it was all in the first half. It was an onslaught of these eight points and, like, you know, a concentrated uh, spurt there for Ike. They didn't know what hit him. I thought Seton Hall was going to run the offense the rest of the game through him. That's how efficient he was. He was catching things. He was finishing at the bucket. I was like, where has this been? Well, well, the difference was they weren't trying to hit Ike on the move. They weren't trying to hit Ike in traffic. They were giving him passes that he can handle. There were a few nice drives by Aiken. He just put it up there. Ike dunked it. There was one where Ike, toward the end of a shot clock, it, it, he could have rushed it, but he looked calm and poised. He got it down low, and he put up a nice little shot because nobody's blocking that seven-foot monster. You just wish you saw it more often. I mean, how how big is Golden or Enzi? They're both like what six nine tops. Yeah, they're six right? eight, six nine guys. I mean, they're okay, not that big. Okay, and he's seven two. I'm I'm gonna say everybody gets inflated with their height and sneakers. My point is, he's got a solid five inches over these guys. Are you, you trying expect- to tell me Ike is not a legit seven two, Mike? Uh, I, I I have it on good record that he's not a legit seven two. Okay, only okay. only Marco Gill was a legit seven two. But, you know, my point is, you see it illustrated in this game against Butler, and you're like, why can't it happen more often? Yeah, it's there, Ike. Show it to me. You know, give, give me a solid eight points. Force the defense to collapse on you and open up more three-point shots or, or driving lanes because they have to respect what you can do at the rim. But anyway, game-changing performance by Ike coming back. You clearly felt his presence, and I thought that really kind of uh, jump-started the Pirates to build their lead and, and take this game where they needed to take it to. But well, speaking of being poised, come on, Tommy, give Bryce his due. Give Bryce Aiken his due. Come on, I'm gonna make you gotta you gotta you gotta take this one. I'm, I, I'm, I'm I don't hear, know hear what words. you're talking about. Giving anyone his due. Uh, this is not a shock to the system, at least from my side, Mike. I was just worried about the kid never being healthy. We never said a darn thing about the kid not being talented, not being skilled. And most importantly in this game, 
He seemed to be poised and playing like a true point guard. In this game, he had more assists than shot attempts. He had seven assists to six shots. He was four or six from the field, only two three-point attempts. He didn't take any of those quote-unquote crazy shots or bombs that you complain about that you know is in his DNA. And he had a crucial steal and three-point play to extend the lead in the second half back up to nine. He played a fantastic game. And that wasn't shocking for you? No, The fact that he actually had... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Bryce has seven assists compared to six shot attempts. Not baskets made, shot attempts in total. And you're like, oh, I I knew that's Bryce. That's totally Bryce's DNA. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's not a shock to see him play smart. He's a 25-year-old kid. He played four years for Harvard. He is a smart player. This is what the team needed at this point. We're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this in the next game when we recap UConn. I'm going to hold you to this. All I remembered is you cannot change a tiger's stripes. We're, we're going to come back to this. All right? I'm just going to say this, Mike. I'll tell you, every time he goes down, he gets up off the floor like I get out of bed in the morning, Mike. It's painful to watch. And every time he gets knocked down, I'm just worried he's not getting back up. No, I, I know, man. I was taking down the Christmas lights this week and I banged my knee on the ladder and I felt like I was going to be crippled, crippled from my little knee bang. Like, I, anyway. Well, you are, right. a, you are a year older now, Michael. All right. Speaking of poise, and you know, there has been years that we've lamented about why can't we shoot a free throw straight? Why can't we get some kind of sports psychiatrist to come in and talk to the team or get into the gym and shoot extra free throws? It's nice when the right guys get to take those free throws, especially on the road. 18 of 19 for 95%. How often do you expect a Seton Hall team, once again, in the Willard regime, to be as solid from the line as this team has been throughout the year? And in a game like this, to not miss a free throw, that was another component that did not let Butler open the door for a comeback. So kudos to the Pirates from that perspective. Tommy, a lot of poise in these first three bullet points that we talked about in blue tinted glasses. All right, uh... We complained about the scouting report after Willard just, you know, gave Kyle Smythe all the credit in the world. And we were like, are you sure he had the right scout? But we gave Butler a scout in our preview on the last episode. And what did I say? I said, Chuck Harris could be a spark plug for this team. He's now coming off the bench. And in the game against Oklahoma, he had a season high of 26, actually career high. I said, don't let him get going. Don't let him ignite this team from three. Chuck Harris did not score in this game. And I also said, let a player like Jaden Taylor, who's an up-and-coming frosh, don't let him get to the rim. Let him toe the line. And combined, him and Bryce Enzi were given the green light by Kevin Willard to take whatever three they wanted, and they shot a collective three of 14. Tommy, what a refreshing feeling it is when they actually scout the team and execute it the right way are you insinuating that potentially someone on this coaching staff listened to the podcast last week and said hey these two know what they're talking about in this scout maybe we should listen to them is that no what you're no, no i don't think no not, not a chance but i'm going to take whatever credit <laughs> i can take no way but, well, but we were right though right we, we, we were on point i'm assuming willard's people were seeing the same thing and they executed it the right way. So once again, hats off to 
Willard and his staff. I thought they nailed the scout correctly on this one. And you know what? That that's look, we got four things in blue tinted glasses. When was the last time we did that? It's 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 a nice feeling, isn't it, though, Mike? But let me just say, Chuck Harris looked lost on the court. He I said he was I, I said he was lost. struggling. It's not a sophomore slump. After the game against us, it felt like a sophomore slump. Absolutely, but you know, it wouldn't be us if we didn't complain about something. And you know what? We got off to that slow start against a bad Butler team. I mean, we scored seven points in the first six minutes. And this is more of a trend for us, man. Against Nova, we scored 12 points in the first 12 minutes. When we were at Providence, 16 points in those first 13 minutes against hated Rutgers, 12 points in the first 10. We've got this repeated issue where we start slow against a team like Butler and against a team like Rutgers. That shouldn't happen. I'm just going to take Butler and Rutgers and put them together and call them Buckers here. (laughs) You know what? I I can't disagree. And if it had reared its ugly head again in UConn, I probably would go off even further in this section. Yeah, they've had more of a negative trend to these types of slow starts, uh, but it was nice to see them get off to a good start against UConn. I'm going to hope that this was just a mini four-game anomaly, you know, that they were shorthanded, they weren't comfortable with their rotations at that point. Whatever whatever it was, the pauses, you know, I mean, some teams come off of a pause that are shooting like 65% against us, but you know what? Not playing basketball or not practicing consistently for a two-week stretch, very easily could see teams have some of the starts that they have, so you know what? I, if it becomes an issue again or it starts becoming a more consistent theme, we'll come back to it. They were able to overcome it on this particular night because Butler is a lesser of a team. But let's just kind of put this one in our back pocket. What I was hoping that was going to continue as a trend was the nice shooting performance of Jameer Harris and kind of getting back to his comfort zone or confidence level. And he came out with over three from the floor, all on three-point attempts, and he just didn't have the impact on the offensive side of the ball. I know he's being touted for playing some aggressive defense in the last couple games, but he needs to be out there to stretch the floor, and we're not getting it from Jameer. You know, we said before that Chucky Harris looked like he was just a little confused or lost. I don't know what was going on with Jameer. You know, he's an upperclassman. He should be able to carry these things through, but... First play he got into it when he when he got on the court, he got a ball at the three-point line. He was basically open. He should have threw that ball up. And he kind of pump fakes and then tries to go for a drive. By the time he drives, the defense had collapsed. And he had to kick it back around. And I'm just thinking, what's he doing? That that's the shot you want him to take. He just seemed he seemed a little lost out there, a little confused, like he didn't want to force something, but he was not by not taking it, he was kind of forcing the action. He's thinking. You could you could kind of see the that's a good, you know, that's the a hamster good on the wheel. It. Right? He's thinking out there. He's not playing instinctually. So do I take this shot? Do I get off to a bad start? Do I drive? I guess he's gotta just once again, we said it's about Jared lately, just gotta get in the flow of the game. Jameer cannot sit there and say, All right, if I miss my first two, I'm gonna get the hook. Just do what you do, play your game. And you know, if you if you got the hot hand, Willard's gonna let you go. And you know, there's gonna be a couple of nights where you hit four or five and you're a big part of the offensive output. It just I want more consistency and it's not there yet, and it didn't carry over from the Nova game. But I feel like his shot selection kind of 
rubbed off on everybody else. You were saying to me, you know, what else goes in, in sour grapes and grapes? How about shot selection? I'm like, well, who? And you're like, everybody. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, you're, you're probably not off there. So even though they won this game and it was businesslike, they still kind of gutted it out on the offensive side of the ball. It's not sexy. It's not pretty. You know, and, and there's also a little bit of basketball IQ or game situation that I question. There was a point in the second half that they got up by 12 and Harris, once again, and Yetna, I thought both took bad three-point attempts when they could have kind of dropped the hammer, you know, got to the rim, took better quality shots, and really extended that game and not let Butler have that one last run that they cut it down to six. Thoughts on that? Well, we're at this point where we're really nitpicking at this. You know, it, this is stuff that's going to happen. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm having a hard time taking it seriously. It never felt once we got past that 15-2 run that, that Butler was ever seriously going to make a comeback. I know they cut it to five, but... It so you don't like my turning point. You didn't like my turning point. That is what you're trying to say. No, I never I like your turning point, Mike. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, you try way too hard. You try to get way too cute, just like Willard at end the game sequences. I felt threatened a little bit when those two threes went in early in the second half. I was like, all right, little momentum here. So I, I really do think that Jared hit some big threes there. And once again, Butler is an inferior opponent. They're going to be a bottom three team in the Big East. If that was Villanova who cut it to five or six on several occasions in the second half and were at their place, you feel you, feel you could fend them off by taking bad shots? No. That's a different story, yes, Mike. I, I don't think I'd feel like we were nitpicking, but if you feel like you've got to be negative, Mike, why don't we turn our ire on people who deserve our negativity? And that would be the announcers and some of the serious mic flops that we heard this past week. And we're going to start at the halftime of the Butler game for the in-studio crowd. Brandon, what do you see in the opening 20? Uh, it was a, a, a slow strike for uh, Seton Hall, but they managed to go into this 15-1 run uh, by just dominating the paint. Um, they was able to get some cle some big blocks from um, from big fella, Obi Joe. Now, Mike, we could unpackage this in multitude of ways, okay? You know, for one, Brandon Rush is having a hard time here. It's like he's tripping over his own tongue to start off with. He talks about a 15-1 run. No, that's wrong. It was a 15-2 run, and then he feels like he's got a one-up. That Sandro Mamouche call from last year by calling him Obi Joe. Obi Joe. Obi Joe. I mean, he couldn't get a sentence out of his mouth. I mean, I know we do a lot of editing behind the scenes, Tom, but geez, if you're sitting there doing your like audition interview, how do you get the gig with what he just brought to the table there? Oh, that was bad. Uh, that was that was rough. All right, well, what else you got for me in the mic flop section? Well, we could always go to our good friend Casey Jacobson because Stop let me tell you something. Stop picking on Casey. Stop Ca picking on I Casey. I understand that Casey's a clean-cut, good-looking kid from Stanford, but I'll tell you, that Stanford education isn't worth what it used to be. He goes at the halftime of the game that both UConn and Seton Hall should just be happy that both teams had all their players on the floor. And of course, 
Alexis Yetna, the guy who's been touted as the only player that started all the games for Seton Hall so far this season, was out of the lineup. Kind of a big point to miss there, Casey. The starting four is not on the floor. All right, you got me. That, that that's kind of sloppy. You got you got to know. You got to know that they're down one of their key components in the front court once again. I you're right. You're right. Okay, I, I can't. I like KC normally. Maybe it is the good looks. Maybe I'm getting wooed a little bit. But you know, he normally has good stuff to say. This was underprepared. So all right, he gets the mic flop. But in that same sequence, I remember that sequence now. In that same sequence, Lavin is breaking down the high-scoring first-half offense, and he's like, well, they were playing that brother-in-law D. And Casey Jacobson's like, well, what's that? He's like, well, that's where, like, you know, you give me a bucket, I give you a bucket. You know, we're kind of making each other look good. We're not really playing intense D. It's like, you know, you get one, I get one. You get one, I get one. You know, you're not really kind of d up your opponent. I thought that was funny. No, I think I think you're enthralled with Steve Lavin's good looks too. But I'll tell you, if, the, if I could look like Steve does at that age, I'm gonna take it. Aren't I'm you almost? Aren't it. you almost at that age, Mike? Oh, wow. You just had a oh, birthday. Yeah. Oh Jesus! Here we go. <laughs> Move on, <laughs> but, please. But Move I'll tell on. you, the best line of the entire week comes from former Pirate Danny Hurley after the game. So here's Danny. The famous Hurley temper, they don't like to lose, but he comes with a great line. He comes in and says, we got to stop losing. We could easily be sitting here as a top five team in the country if we close these games out. We've had some excruciating losses. Now, look at this. We've been goofing around so far, right, in this segment. This is serious stuff. I I loved this answer from Danny. When you first sent it over to me, I was like, that's the guy, right? That's why you like a guy like Danny Hurley in your corner. There were no excuses. They just came off of a pause. You know, they could have sat there and said, hey, we haven't had game action for 18 days. Was there even an iota of an excuse about COVID, about pauses, about scheduling? It was like, hey, we've lost some games this year. And we got to win them. And if you go back and see the games that they did lose, were they not down Sonogo in some of those games? Yeah, were they, they not shorthanded? They lost to Providence by four without Sonogo in that game. So, yeah, he could be crying the blues. He could be talking about, well, I didn't have my full complement of players. But, no, that's not what he does. And the best part is, as he's complaining about losing these games, he's propping his team up saying, we could be top five in the country. Now, do I believe that? No, I don't think Danny's got the horses this year to be top five. But I like that confidence in a head coach. But he's right, though. If they have, they're, they're a one-loss team, or if they had run the gauntlet in those games, which they very well could have, they were down the stretch, possession or two here or there. His team at this moment would be a top five team in the country. If you want to say staying power long-term for the season, they're not. Fine, but they are a net top 20 in the country right now. Yeah, win those games, make those statements. I love the bravado. I just, it's a breath of fresh air from some of the excuses we hear from Kevin when we dive into our favorite segment of the show. And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. Tommy, that was a good transition. Give it to me. That was a good transition. I'm shocked that you took it. It it was nice. I liked it. But, you know, I'll tell you, it was tough coming up with something 
uh, relevant that Kevin said. Because I'll tell you what, I thought Kevin had a bad week of comments. I thought he's had a few stupid things that he said. But I think most importantly, we can focus in on something that a lot of fans have really wanted to see. And that's Brandon Weston play. And during the post game of the Butler contest, he was asked, what is going on with Brandon Weston? And he had the following to say. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I don't, it's, it's a great question. I, I'm going to have to talk to him and his family about that. I think that's, um, you know, I, I think Brandon's going to be a really, really good player. And if I can get him some minutes in Big E's play, I think, I just think it helps you going into next year because you know what to expect. Um, if you don't play in this league and you come in and now it doesn't matter that you practice, doesn't matter. I just think experience is, is monstrous. And, if, you know, you know, he practices for four days. He gets cleared. I was going to play him five to ten minutes against Iona, try to get his feet wet a little bit. Um, and then we're going to have three good days of practice and Johnny's and DePaul. And I thought he would have, you know, that would have been good for him. Then he gets COVID. And he was in he was in a ten day quarantine too. So, um, and then he, we came out and he's Christmas time and he's home for so he was home for thirteen days. So he's gotten detrained. It's going to take him some time. Um, and we'll, but we'll do what what he wants to do. You know, I'm going to leave that decision to Brandon. He's got a great family. He's a terrific young man. We'll just decide. You know, if if you know, I think I don't know if he gets another an extra year or not. I don't, I don't know what's going on. They probably should give out another extra year to every freshman that played this year just because of what's going on. Oh, boy. We, we, we got a lot to go over here. I, I love the three points that you have in the notes for us to cover, but I, you know, I'm hearing it again. I got, I got two more things. You know, I think Brandon Weston's a good player. I hope he's a good player. You recruited the guy. No, I, you know, I recruit this kid. I'm not sure if he's a good player or not. Of course you better hope he's a good player. Otherwise, I'm questioning your decision-making out on the recruiting trail. You know, th- then he says, I don't understand this whole retrain stuff. What does he have to retrain? He has to retrain his stamina? Does he have to retrain his conditioning? Please tell me he doesn't have to retrain knowing how to play basketball again. Is that what is he getting at when he says retrain? I I think he's probably saying he's got to get back up to game speed. So he's been practicing with the team. You know, you take two weeks off. You need a little bit of time to get back up. It's that ramping up period. That's that's going to be my my takeaway from that. You have to play games prior to before you get back up to game speed well you Come gotta on, you practice you you get your wind back up and practice so you're ready to play games and i mean you know he's only gonna get in for like five ten minutes ten minutes max i don't see him getting more than that especially with how deep this team is to begin with but that's how you begin to build that up. But if you go away for two weeks and you don't practice, I can see you being a little winded and not up to at least, or we'll call it practice speed. Does that make you feel okay. better? That, that's right. I'm, we're, I'm just assuming that he's alluding to the impact of COVID on his stamina. I mean, he leaves it kind of ambiguous, but, but okay. That leads me to this first bullet point that you have is he discloses the fact that Brandon had COVID. I know that this is a big uh no sensitive point for you, so I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Is it okay that at this point he's disclosing specifically which one of his players had COVID? I know that some coaches have said, hey, we've all had it. Two-thirds of the team have had it. In this case, he's giving away 
know the medical information of one of his players are you okay with that look this isn't going to be a popular take i'm okay disclosing anything for me saying someone's got COVID is saying like someone's got a sprained ankle you're telling me an injury report here you're not telling me anything else you know i mean you get told He's got a sprained ankle. He tore his ACL. How is any of this any different than saying he's got COVID? It's the same idea. Stop treating us like children. Either tell us everything or tell us nothing. And then if you're not going to tell us at the time of the infection or of the injury, don't tell us later either. You can't have it both ways, pal. That, that's where I was going to go is we're not hearing it, you know, as they're pausing or, you know, as they're shorthanded, you know, with somebody at close contact who actually had it. It's all this, you know, up in the air mystery. But after the fact, then it's an open book. That That's the issue I have with it. Uh, he also says that minutes in Biggie's play are super important. It doesn't matter that you practice the experience in conference play. He uses the word monstrous. I feel like this is a little contradictory. Last year, why wouldn't that have been applicable to Trey Jackson? Here's the team struggling throughout stretches of the year. And when the people were asked, hey, why are we not going to get Trey into the mix now that we have this, you know, uh, eligibility for all players to not have to sit out because of this whole, all these COVID rules, Trey had a chance to now be eligible to play and not count against uh, a year of his overall eligibility and Willard's response back then was, Oh, we didn't expect Trey to play this year. You know, we were hoping that he was going to be redshirted, get all that practice experience and then be eligible the following season. So now you have a chance to play him in Biggie's play last year because that is monstrous value going forward. And he didn't play Trey, but now when evaluating what Weston could do this year, now the shoe's on the other foot, and now it's really important? I, I don't get that. Mike, you know how I feel about this. We talk about this ad nauseum. I feel like if you've got someone that's going to be in the mix or you potentially think is going to be in the mix, you find ways of getting him into the game. I think Trey Jackson should have had some time last year. I mean, what did he get last year? Like three or four games of garbage time? I mean... You can't tell me he couldn't have played three or four minutes at different spots. I mean, we've already seen the Rashid Anthony uh, uh, mentality of getting four minutes in a game just to foul. So you can't tell me you can't give someone a bit of a blow and get someone involved in the games. That's not fair to Trey. I'm cutting you off. That's not fair to Trey. You gave him Rashid Anthony analogy here. He's playing in this third game of the year this this season at Michigan, putting in 13 points in a key moment or key moments throughout that game with no experience the year prior. So obviously whatever he did in practice had value for him jumping on the court and making a huge impact to start the season. What, so what if you think Weston at my point is this, if you think Weston has talent, because you keep on, keeps on saying top 100, the guy's got ability. If he's healthy now, get him in there. Absolutely. Get him in there. Absolutely. Get him. If he's healthy, he's ready, and he can play, get some minutes out of him. I agree with Coach in the sense that putting him into some biggest play is super important. It's, it's a million times more important than getting practice minutes. And that should have happened with Trey Jackson last year as well. Last year was a wasted year. You've got eligibility. Play the kid. It's not like he could have hurt us last year. 
All right. So this comes back to the last point on this segment is it's about eligibility, right? So then he talks about, you know, having Weston's family make the decision. Well, we haven't really talked about Conway. Everyone's saying that Conway is going to redshirt. Did Willard at any point come out and say, we're going to talk to Conway's family about the redshirt? Maybe they have. I, I don't know. But this was pretty vocal about we're going to have Weston's family make the decision. You know, why hasn't it been made official yet? You know, there's a lot of unknown relative to what's going on. Does coach get to make this choice? Does the player get to make this choice? If Brandon's as talented as he is, is he really going to play this year and another four for Seton Hall potentially? I, I don't know, but this team could possibly go 10 deep, maybe even 11 deep in certain scenarios where they could have, right? And now you're down to maybe a nine-man rotation and Willard wants to cut it down to an eight-man rotation in most cases. Highly touted freshman class brought in and we might not see anything but a couple garbage minutes from Tyler Powell the entire season. What what message does that send for players coming to Seton Hall in the future? Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on here. I, I mean, what are you keeping uh what are you keeping Conway's status so secret about here? You need to either redshirt the kid or you need to play the kid. Or you'd either redshirt the kid or not redshirt the kid. Don't jerk him around here. What is he? The you know, the insurance policy in case Bryce Aiken breaks down at this point? I mean, you go any further down the season and then all of a sudden Bryce hurts an ankle or something and he can't play and you're going to turn to Conway? Hell, I, if I'm Conway, I'm saying, no thanks, coach. You said you were going to redshirt me all season. There was tons of garbage time you could have played me in that you didn't. I'm sorry, man. You, If you're going to redshirt him, do it now. Yeah, I don't even think the garbage time helps you develop if you ask me. It's either I'm going to find a way to say that I have three talented freshmen potentially on top of the nine guys that I had in my rotation. And you could even say you had Jahari, which was 10. Yeah, I know it's almost impossible to play 13 guys, but depth was a strength. Go ahead and press. Press, right? Use the legs. Rotate them in and out. Find a way to let these guys play some meaningful minutes. I don't care if Conway got five minutes against Nyack. That, that doesn't do it for me either. So it's either he's part of your plans or he's not a part of your plans. And at this point, I'm leaning towards, yeah, this is almost an automatic red shirt. But now I'm also leaning towards that Weston is probably going to fall into that same category. We're just not going to get that definitive answer because if a key piece goes down, yeah, maybe that story changes. Maybe it, I don't I don't agree with it, but maybe that story does change. Can All you right, imagine what would have happened if we went 0-2 instead of 2-0 and this week, man? Because we've just been hammering on Coach Willard. No, so not hammering. It's just he gave good answers otherwise in the postgame. So I, I'm going to sit there and say, you know, he gave funny answers. He gave answers that kind of addressed the question. But this was a subject matter that has been kind of taboo. He actually opened Pandora's box a little bit. I think it's fair game to talk about it. You know, we, we, we go back and let, let's rewind to Miles Kale's freshman year when Desi goes down up to Providence. Miles wasn't logging any serious minutes, was he? And then all of a sudden he got thrust into a huge role down the stretch in the last like five or six games of the regular season. 
and into the NCAA tournament. He did. No, Miles was getting a minimal time. This is it was different. Miles was getting into those games, and he was looking like a deer in headlights. He wasn't ready to play, but he was getting minutes here or there. It, it's a look different it scenario. Look, look it up. My, Miles took on a much more significant oh, role. Oh sure, of course in the last he had five to. Game, and he acquitted himself well. Is my point. He was getting out on the break and finishing. I think uh, Weston might have that skill set in him as a freshman, and his defense, even as a freshman, was impactful. You might need something like that. Here's a guy who's a top 100 recruit. I hope he didn't forget how to play basketball. That's all I'm saying. All right, m- moving on here. Well, there, there you were know two what? Good Thank wins. goodness we've got some positivity to move on to because we because if someone came into the podcast halfway through, they would have been like, man, this was a rough week for Seton Hall. But Seton Hall 90 UConn 87, the Pirates and Huskies came ready to play for a national Fox television audience as both shot 50% or better in the first half with UConn taking a slight edge to the break, 41-37. Back-to-back threes by Andre Jackson early in the second half gave UConn a nine-point lead, the largest either team would hold on the afternoon. But then Kadari Richmond lost his mind and took over the scoring as he netted 17 straight points for the Hall to push them out in front 62-61. The final 10 minutes then took on the feel of a heavyweight Biggie's battle as the teams exchanged the leads and blows back and forth. Bryce Aitken's three-point attempt at the buzzer was just off and fittingly, 40 minutes was just not enough to settle this one. In overtime, each team continued to make big plays, but none bigger than the Richmond go-ahead layup with 32 seconds to play, followed by a Jared Roden steal with less than three ticks on the clock to seal the victory. All right, Tommy, stats on this one. Katari Richmond, career high. I get to say it for a pirate this time. Career high, 27 points, 10 of 13 from the floor, 6 of 8 from the free throw line. Bryce Aiken in the box score again, 22 points, 6 of 13, 8 of 9 from the charity stripe, and another 7 assists. And Jared Roden did his thing for 15 points, 6 rebounds, and a game-high 41 minutes while battling the flu. Our opponents, Adama Sonogo. Uh, man, until he moves on, it's just going to be frustrating to read his stat line. 18 points, 16 rebounds. UConn had a total of five players in double figures in this one. Cole chipped in 15, Martin 13, Polly 11, and Jackson 10. You know what, Tom? For a team that was coming off of a COVID pause and the way the Pirates were playing recently, the shooting was not rusty at all. Field goal percentage, Seton Hall. for the entire game. UConn, 47%. I thought they were plus, what, almost 60% the first half alone? Three-point shooting. Seton Hall, 40% on a very reasonable 6 of 15. And UConn just couldn't miss. 14 of 23 for 61% for the entire game. Free throw shooting. Seton Hall, 20 of 24. UConn, 11 of 12. 83 and 92% respectively. And here are some of the, the stats that kind of stand out in which each team held an edge. UConn was plus 15 on the glass, 40 to 25. That led to a plus 15 
second chance point advantage for the Huskies. But Seton Hall countered with a plus eight differential in points off turnovers and held a seven to nothing edge in fast break points. That's interesting. That's back to back games that Seton Hall has held their opponent without a fast break point. That was an interesting nugget that just kind of jumped off the page at me here. But the turning point, I mean, it's kind of clear as day, right? 54 to 45, and Richmond just goes nuts and takes over the scoring for the Hall with the next 17 points, and he pushes them out in front, 62 to 61. And then we're off to the races in terms of just a classic basketball game down the stretch and throughout overtime. I mean, Tom, this was a good one. This was, this was you know, a, the announcers kept saying over and over, you know, you had Tim Brando, who I know you like, and you had the cheerleader, Donnie Marshall, sitting there just loving himself, some positive uh, play from the Yukon Huskies. But I'll tell you this, I was just finishing off the Dana O'Neill Big East book last night that I got for Christmas, and it just kind of, I just kind of thought to myself, this game could have been one of those old Big East games. And I know you're saying old oh, Big East games were defensive battles. No, no, no. The quality of play, the big time feel. I mean, this seemed like an event. This should have been noon on a Saturday. This should have been 8 p.m. MSG primetime scheduling because that was one hell of a game. And like you mentioned, Kadari Richmond chose the biggest stage to come up big. Loda, before we get into the Qatari hype train, I want to rewind and make a comment on your, your national exposure comment, because you're right. You know, this felt like a primetime game, but let's put it into perspective. A 12 o'clock Fox, not Fox Sports, not FS1 or FS2, but the national Fox game at noon, you know, for that national broadcast was not up against any college football. It was not up against NFL playoff football that's going to happen in the upcoming weeks here. This was a standalone type, all eyes on college basketball, getting into conference play. And no, I know there was not a ranked number next to both teams or a high rank for Seton Hall, but UConn carries some cachet. And to have that game go toe-to-toe, to have a performance like Kadari, to have it go into overtime where both teams are hitting big shots, I mean, it just made for great theater. And it kind of put both of these teams, you know, on display for everyone to sit there and go, these are two teams to watch throughout the rest of the year. Forget about the rankings or the records. This is quality basketball. That, that's what I took away from it. But yes, in terms of quality or exceeding expectations, no. I mean, what, what Kadari did was was off the charts fantastic. I mean, just the, the concept of 17 straight points for one team is hard to fathom. Tommy did it in four minutes of play. Four. I mean, just it's hard to wrap your head around that. And to even score just 23 in the second half of such a hotly contested ball game. And then he hits the game winner. Yes, I know he hits the three. You're like, wow, and he hits a three. But he has this lull where he's probably he's probably gassed. He's lost his legs. Bryce is doing his take over the, the show type, you know, close it out mentality. And where do they go? They went back to the man that got him there, and he hits the game winner with 32 seconds to play 
How dominant of a performance was that? It asked the question, can he do this on a consistent basis? But it wasn't like he was doing a Jeremy Hazell um, impersonation where he's just hitting crazy shots. Kadar was just getting to the rim whenever he wanted. And he seems to have that skill set where when he doesn't score a whole lot of points or he doesn't set up teammates, you're wondering the heck is going on he's got that skill set and it seems like he should be able to do that more no he didn't settle for the 15 footer as often in this game i thought that made a difference i mean he put his head down and made sure that in in certain scenarios he gave you that extra dribble he gave that little shoulder that extra little drop step to you know make a concerted effort to get to the glass or get to the rim. I, th- I thought that was important. It was nice that he kind of had a little heat check and hit the three. Uh, I don't want to see too much of that, but that that was pretty cool. Uh, my issue is this, you know, like you said, it's all about consistency. Can he duplicate it? I don't think any coach is going to sit there and watch that film and say, okay, we're going to take our chances. And are we going to get the Kadari of earlier this season? Or are we going to let him kind of back up that performance and put up another 20 plus and be a difference maker. I, I think they're going to start running double teams at him, just like UConn started to do late in the second half. My question is, you know, how will Willard use Richmond in the post effectively when that, that double team starts to come? Willard said that earlier in the season, he was getting some of those looks and, and that kind of threw him off. Here's my thing. This is why you need a guy like Jameer Harris and Bryce Aiken to stretch the floor and shoot the three. You can put, Harris in the opposite corner if he's posting up. You can play a little two-man game between Richmond and Aiken as he feeds the post. It doesn't have to be Kadari driving it all the way down into the post with like seven or eight dribbles. And now you can have the kick across or you can have the kick back out if they want to come double. My concern is if you have someone like Ike in the game, that's the guy who's going to come over to double. And, I, you know, is there going to be that chemistry to get Ike the lob and make them pay for it? I'm thinking the more that you have a Tyrese a Trey Jackson in the game, and you could once again go four around the perimeter and let Kadari pick or choose where the kickout goes to if that double comes, that could be dangerous. That 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 could be a weapon. Well, we heard all summer long about Kadari and his passing skills. So let that double team show up. I've got confidence in his skill set to get the open man the ball. But you said duplicating the effort. And you know who duplicated an effort, Mike? Your boy, Bryce Aiken. Back-to-back games with a seven assists, and I think he had five in that first half. But... Those stripes on that Tiger, they don't change. He still took a bunch of long-range three-point bombs, but he played a really nice game. Oh, come on. You really, you got you got to take a little jab there? I'm going to take yes, a jab. That's under- a jab at you, Mike. It's not a jab at, at Bryce. It's a jab at you. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to break this down here. Yes, he did. He took three or four of his, you know, step back or long-distance threes where he kind of completely eliminated that in the Butler game. So, no, that came back a little bit. Fine. That's that, that's fine. But how many times previously did you see Bryce attack the basket and have the types of assists that he left for Tyrese, where he drew two or three defenders and just laid it off nice and easy for Tyrese to put in a little dunk or layup? Normally, Bryce is giving you some kind of windmill finish, reverse layup, and he's hitting the rim or, you know, it's, it's, it just becomes like a more of a forced turnover, you know, one against three. And he made the he made the right pass. 
And I think he was looking to make that pass this time. So Tom, no, I do believe that he is changing his stripes. Here's why. Okay. You in don't change your stripes when you're 25 years old, Mike. In those A last six year games, of college, you're not changing any stripes, Mike. Stop it. In those last two games, he had a combined three turnovers. It's not just he had a high usage and all of a sudden, therefore, his assists went up. His assists went up. His turnovers were down. I'm going to go a little extreme here. I'm going to rewind the clock back to the University of South Florida matchup between uh, the Bulls and the Pirates when Isaiah Whitehead decided to not be the lead scoring option in that game and all of a sudden become the point guard that took off and led the, the, the Pirates down the stretch of that season. Yes, there were moments that Whitehead was impactful and took over the game with his scoring ability. But in that game, I think he had about 13 assists. And you were like, I think the light bulb went off in terms of his ability to play the point guard position, but still know when to take over. So to me, and maybe I'm being a little extreme here. I'm going to say this is the Bryce Aiken, Isaiah Whitehead, connect the dots. He understands his role now as to what needs to happen in terms of his ability and his ability to play point guard for this team and then still get his own down the stretch. Mike, I, I really enjoy the way you break down stuff and you look at stuff and I and I, I thrill at your memory, but you are out of your ever-loving, stinking mind right now when you're comparing a 19-year-old Isaiah Whitehead finally kind of harnessing those five-star skills and understanding what the team needs to a 25-year-old Bryce Aiken. Dude, stop it. You you are you are trying to write a narrative that doesn't exist. We all develop at different stages. You are out of your mind. You are out of your mind. We all didn't kiss a girl at the same age there, Tommy, okay? You're out of your mind, Michael. <laughs> Tom, I got one more point about Bryce before you want to move on to sour grapes and gripes. Because as good of a game that Kadari was having, did you realize that in the last 15 possessions of this ball game, it was still Bryce that was the alpha? Of those 15 possessions, 10 of them, it resulted in either an assist by him or a shot attempt or a trip to the free throw line by Aiken on a night where Richmond goes off for 27. If we have not established that Aiken is now the unquestionable alpha down the stretch on this team, I don't know what else has been established over these last four or five games. See, I think you and I look at alpha in different mentalities. Of course, Aiken's the alpha. He's been the alpha for the entire season. The alpha doesn't need to be the one that's scoring. He's got to be the one that drives the car. Last week, you asked me who I thought the alpha was on UConn. I said R.J. Cole. I mean, Adama Sinoko is definitively their best player. He's their best scorer. But R.J. Cole's the one that drives that shit, man. So I don't, I don't disagree in the least bit that that UConn will only go as far as R.J. Cole can steer it. Last three possessions, UConn went to Adama Sinoko. That's all I gotta say. Well, so, that's and- because R.J. Cole had fouled out. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Good point. Good point, Mike. Thank you. How did it right, go for? How did it go for him? Keep complaining. Go ahead. Move on to Sour Grapes and Grapes. Well, you know, and this has probably got something to do with Alexis Yetna being out. We're almost at that point where we had that full uh, team ready to play. But our rebounding again was just not up to snuff. I mean, let's forget about the fact that our seven foot two giant failed to get a rebound in his time during the game. 
but we gave up 15 offensive boards to UConn, eight alone to Sunogo. Mike, so are you okay? I mean, are you okay with all this? Are you really okay with Ike challenging every shot out there and therefore resulting in him not grabbing a rebound? You don't know. It's possibly- beyond. It's beyond challenging those shots. I mean, right after the Butler game, someone on Twitter was saying, "Oh, look at those improved hands on Ike." And I'm just thinking to myself, what are you talking about? Unless you hand the ball off to him, he's going to flub it. I mean, there was a spot in the Butler game where there was a rebound coming directly for Ike and it bounced off his hands out of bounds. And I'm just like, he can't even grab a rebound. So no, I'm, I don't think it's got anything to do with trying to block shots because there's been players that have blocked shots in the past that have been able to grab rebounds, Mike. Let's not pretend this is like some sort of... This is not a formula, Mike, where guys that block shots don't grab boards because I'd like to introduce you to a bunch of centers from Georgetown who used to block everything in their sights and still grab boards. Uh, I I don't like this take from you. So therefore, I'm not going to even counter with a response. I'm going to introduce our new segment that we had talked about. We're going to try to do something where we call it the social media post of the week and try to mix it into our dialogue as we do each week's episode. And I think it fits in perfectly here, right? Out on Rivals, Pirates with a Z put up a post saying, we put too much emphasis on Ike's rebounding. Yeah, it'd be great if he was a better rebounder, but he does so many other things. The team's challenge is when Jackson is at the four instead of Yetna or Samuel. With the way our defense is designed, and the way that Ike plays, you need the four to rotate in for the boards. Jackson is just not a consistent rebounder. The other two are excellent rebounders. I'll even piggyback and say, when this is the case, if you're going to let Ike roam the middle and do whatever the heck he wants and challenge every shot, he's taking him out of out of position to try to grab those boards. Whether he can do it the way Patrick Ewing or Alonzo Mourning or Dikembe Mutombo did it, like all NBA-type players, I'm sorry, he's not those guys. Then I expect Roden and the guards like Richmond who rebound for their position well to once again combine with the right guy at the four to help stabilize the rebounding. You didn't have Yetna. You had Samuel for limited minutes. And, you know, the the UConn guards were getting on the glass in this game. So I think Pirates is correct in his assessment of saying that the zero rebounds is not detrimental to how the Pirates need to play when Ike is doing his thing protecting the rim. As usual, if it doesn't fit your narrative, you miss my point. Ike has zero rebounds, Mike! Zero! How are you seven foot two and you have zero rebounds? I'm not asking him to be the leading rebounder on the team, Mike. I'm not even asking him to be the second leading rebounder. I'm asking for something to fall into his hands. But if, but if he gets one or board. two, if he gets one or two, we're still having the same conversations. Don't give me the you know the, the rain from the gods has one fall into his hands and all is now right. You still be having the same problem. You need to board better as a big man. Stop it. Stop it. Ah, geez. Let's move on here. The other issue that was talked about at nauseum in the post game by uh, the fans, social media, was the sequence in which Aiken 
is making his second free throw against Willard's wishes, therefore resulting in a three-point lead. UConn inbounding the length of the court to Sonogo. He dribbles out, puts up a three-point attempt. For the record, it would not have counted. It was after the buzzer. But it looks in retrospect like UConn got a good look at the basket to send it to double OT. Do you agree with the way this played out? Or what was the strategy that you would have implemented? Are you taking Aiken's side or are you taking Willard's side? Oh, I'm taking Aiken's side here. You know, you make that free throw, you can't lose. You can be tied, you can't lose. Make that shot, guard the inbounds. Hey, here's here's something crazy. Guard the inbounds because we've seen what happens when you don't do it. And then you've got nothing to talk about. They didn't get the shot off, Mike. What are we complaining about here? I just, look, I think it's just an interesting play to dissect analytically. Are we looking at it from the statistics? Are we looking at it from the execution? I agree with you. If I'm making the free throw, I want my 7-2 guy on the ball on the inbounds, making it almost impossible to throw the Grant Hill-type baseball pass. He's going to have to maneuver around my giant. Instead, Ike's back there playing below the free throw line when, once again, only a three-point shot can beat you. So I don't know what value he's playing down there. And on top of that, I want everybody face guarding the, their man, forcing them to have to fight through you going away from the basket to get the ball with 1.7 seconds to go. To catch, turn, dribble, and get a shot off is almost impossible. So if you don't like the mathematics, the way it played out versus what it could have been, then at least executionally play it better than what Seton Hall did in that moment. Willard had a timeout. UConn didn't, so maybe he didn't want to give that timeout to to Hurley to kind of organize what would happen if a basket if a, the free throw was made. But Seton Hall was not prepared in what Willard wanted to execute. It should kind of be like, hey, we're making this and we're going to defense set number of whatever for end game situations, and they were clueless. The fact that Aiken is mouthing to his coach when you go back and play the play the tape, what are you crazy? Or something on the the lines, and then he's like shaking his head, going, "I'm done making this free throw." And Mike, you know what? If you're gonna miss that free throw, why aren't you lined up on that line? You want to be, you want to have some people box. If you're gonna miss that free throw, you want boxing out to happen. If the guy, if UConn grabs that rebound, you want someone in his face. To, to stop him from throwing no, I, a pass? I, 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 I don't, though. So I'm going to go back and remind fans of an NCAA tournament game in which Butler beat Pittsburgh. There was a couple of horrendous calls down the stretch. And what happens is Pittsburgh misses the free throw, and the big guy for Butler, Matt Howard, grabs the rebound with under two seconds to go and makes a desperation attempt down by – I think they were down by two, but whatever the point was, he makes a desperation chuck to the other side of the court and the Pittsburgh guy got in his way. And it was so blatant of a foul. The ref had to actually call it and he got to the free throw line. I'm not sure if he put them ahead or they went to overtime, but Butler ends up upsetting number one seed Pitt and going to the final four. That's not acceptable 
So okay. if you're gonna put thank, a guy on the line, you, thank you for your anecdotal evidence there, Mike. Great. One chance do of it. that happening. We play we play dumb basketball in these situations all the time. Don't put my guy in a position to do a bonehead play, which I've seen happen before. So I, I'm sorry, no, you've seen gonna, it once. You've that's, seen that's it once now, Mike. But that's this scenario. That's the scenario that everyone's playing out here. Is if it misses, what's the mathematical possibility of him catching the rebound, taking a dribble, and chucking it up? Or like a three-quarter court shot. Overthinking this, make the foul right. shot and 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 get in front of the inbounder. All right, am I am I overthinking this last point? I mean, I don't think our blue our sour grapes and gripes have been that egregious in this episode. I think we are nitpicking and having some fun topics here. But I want to I want to get into the crowd a little bit. The crowd has been awesome this year, but I feel like since the Texas and Rutgers game, with COVID ramping up and students being out on break, I feel kind of like the crowd has tailed off a little bit. You know, 13,000 plus in the Villanova game when it felt like they were going to almost sell out the entire building. And then you only had 11,000 in attendance. And if I'm not mistaken, the upper level was also open for this one. Correct. You know, is and we also have a vaccination mandate coming to the rock effective January 10th. Are we going to see less of an impact by having the sold out crowds that we were expecting with the team playing so well and how intimidating it was? earlier in the season possibly i mean you know omicron is running wild right now like you know so i mean people might not want to go into an arena like this i i don't blame them i wouldn't be going right now i'd be watching from my conference of my house so you know i is it gonna happen i think it's gonna happen everywhere I, and you know what if the vaccine mandate actually happens at the rock is that going to create more issues Gosh, I hope not. Go get vaccinated. Go get vaccinated. Go see the Pirates. There you go. There's your solution. All right. All right. Let, let's transition here to the whoa, did you see that moment for the week? I, I didn't see you add this into the notes. Oh, my goodness. All right. So during this week upcoming, uh, the schedule was uh, reshuffled. We had the DePaul game rescheduled. We had the St. John's game rescheduled. And the St. John's game because of conflicts could not be held at the rock. So on January 24th, it was announced that it was going to be held at Walsh gymnasium. And there was some talk that, you know, how are you going to run the ticket scenario? Do you do a lottery? Maybe you go students only and lo and behold, that's what Seton hall decided to do. They announced a student only environment for the conference game against rival St. John's. At historical Walsh Gym, Tommy. Do you like it? Do you, do you like do you like the play here? I love it. And I'm going to say this. I said it on Twitter. I'm going to say it here. Students, break out the streamers. Get over to the craft shop. Get over to CVS, a drugstore. Get the streamers. First basket of the game. Throw those streamers in the court like they did when the Big East first started playing. I absolutely love it. You want to make up this game. You're not going to get it at the rock at this point. Get it there. Get the student section crazy. But yeah, Mike, you, you you think Left Coast Pirates has enough of a following that you're you're going to get this thing sparked by people listening to the podcast? Not, not in the least bit. But I, if I see one streamer, just give me one streamer dropping in, I'd be excited. I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna throw back the the clock here, the heck with streamers. Ask them to throw the TP, man. Go for it all. <laughs> Go back to the glory days, streamers. 
You know, go, go into your dorm room and bring a couple rolls. I mean, come on. <laughs> but I tell you this, Mike, I'm disappointed in you. I think this is big time weak sauce. You, you just cop out with this. Whoa, did you see that moment? I mean, we could have picked like half of Ike's blocks from the Yukon game. They nah, were crazy nah, I'm, I'm blocks. No, I'm see, this is why I can't stand you, Mike. Nah. If Andre Jackson would have connected with that tomahawk dunk, you would have been trying to give him the whoa did you see that moment well, yeah, but Michael, I blocks that? it I goes ahead and blocks Tyrese Martin against the backboard he cuffs an RJ Cole layup attempt and you're just like I'm not, I, it I, I thought me. it was pretty I thought it was pretty cool when a cook uh, a cook blocked Ike I thought that was a pretty cool uh, play in the game I'm too what do you want me to right say now. I tell you I said 72 guy and a cook a cook at 6'9 and what he's like a string bean is up there and sending I shot back uh, no, look, this this game against St. John's is pretty cool. I, I wish with all the COVID stuff that's been taking place, we'd see more of it. I know that the, yeah, the season ticket holder and the Pirate Blue donor doesn't want to hear that, but this is a pretty cool environment. We give Chris Beard all the props in the world when this happened earlier in the season in a you know, not as a pivotal game for Texas during their non-conference, and everyone was pumping them up. We're doing this during Big East play and probably what's going to be a a big matchup after the back-to-back matchups from what Saturday to Monday versus the Johnnies. So I, I I love it. I love it. How could that not be the, what did you see that moment when they made that announcement? I thought you, that was pretty You cool. can't help yourself, but get Chris Beard into the podcast almost at, on a weekly basis. I have my agendas. It seems like, right? You do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking, speaking of my agendas, top 25 resume tracking. I'm on the clock for my two minutes. I'm going to keep it quick, Tom. You know, there was so much that happened in the top 25 this week, but I also don't think the way that it broke, it's going to impact Seton Hall that much. But I think there's still a couple takeaways. You had 11 losses of teams in the top 25. That's a lot. That just tells you that there's going to be a lot of upsets throughout the season. If Seton Hall takes care of business, they're going to have their chance to move up. You know, nobody outside of Baylor right now feels like they're entrenched, even at the top of the top 25. Duke loses to Miami at home. Purdue loses at home to Wisconsin. That's two and three in the polls. If you're looking for a little bias to follow Seton Hall and their resume, unfortunately, Ohio State and Texas at 13 and 14, both both went down. So you want to see those teams kind of stay in the top 25. You know, Providence took a hit. Man, they, they got lambasted by 32 at Marquette. So, I mean, they could fall pretty hard in the rankings. You know, but... I see the way that the teams lost in this similar area where Seton Hall is. You're probably going to move up, give or take about three to four spots. My guess is three. I, I think the Hall comes in somewhere around 21 this week. You know, I, I understand that they won two games and UConn's a, you know, a, a household name, but UConn was still not ranked. Uh, but if you're looking at resume building, I take solace in the fact that UConn was a quad one win. And the fact that they're a top 20 quad one win, I think they're going to stay there most of the year. So to for it to be a quad one win on your resume end of the season, that team has to be a net top 30. My gut tells me UConn's going to be a net top 30, and that win is going to kind of hold water by, by the end of the season. 
Yeah, you know, that smells about right. You know, that it's probably right where we deserve to be anyway. I know there was a lot of hullabaloo about us dropping all the way to 24. Some people were like, oh, the writers should take into consideration that we were shorthanded. But that's not how it works. I'm sorry. So th this looks like a nice way to build back up into that top 20 ranking and what better way than to take care of business against two kind of lackluster teams this coming week on thursday we get to play against DePaul, and next saturday we get to travel out to milwaukee to play marquette yeah but you're on the road don't take it for granted two road games in the big east you know you're gonna be out there on thursday and have to hang around till saturday uh, I'm, I'm, saying. So, I'm sorry, Mike. DePaul doesn't impress me. I mean, you know, they're 9-5 overall, and, uh, and as usual, they start off 0-4 in Big East play. It's Tony Stubblefield's first year as a coach. He was an 11-year assistant at Oregon. He previously was an assistant with Cincinnati and New Mexico State as well. But again, what's their best win? Probably their win against Louisville. I mean, I know they beat Rutgers, but come on. Who doesn't beat Rutgers at this day? Hey, hey, they went on the road at the, the Yum Yum Center to beat Louisville. And Louisville right now is 4-1 and one in conference play in the ACC. And I believe 10-5 and five overall. That's a good win to go down there. It is you know, a we, good we, win, Michael. But, you know, but they're still 0-4 in Big East play, Mike. I mean, this is DePaul. This is what they do. Last year, we got all sorts of excited about them running through their out-of-conference schedule. And what happened? They became DePaul again. Death taxes and DePaul in the bottom of the Big East standings. Right? Death taxes and Kevin Willard arguing about the schedule. <laughs> you know, I mean, outside, uh, you know, they do have talent. Let's not shortchange them. You know, they're not befred of talent. Javon Freeman Liberty's having a nice season so far. 21.6 points a game, 7.6 boards, 3.2 assists, doing a little bit of everything, obviously. He's leading the Big East in scoring, so he's outstanding. Last year, he had to share the load after he transferred in with Charlie Moore, and the, you know, Charlie Moore has never seen a shot he didn't like. You know, And now, all of a sudden, he's got to you know, shoulder the responsibility of being their leading guy. We talked about it on previous episodes of what, what it's like to go from being the, the number two on the scouting report to the number one guy on the scouting report and he all he's done has improved his numbers across the board so you know here's a guy where if you once again gonna let him get going gonna spark the team and have one of those nights where he goes for 20 to 25 you're kind of in a little bit of danger zone by letting DePaul hang around so you cannot take this guy lightly yeah he's probably more of a volume shooter but Seton Hall needs to make him their number one priority or better yet they got a two-headed monster that's not getting enough respect right now. If I say the name David Jones, you're going to be like, David who, right? But have you looked up what David Jones has done for them on this team so far? He, he's a sophomore, up and coming. He's now 15 and a half points per game, almost eight rebounds. Tommy put in a career-high 33 in that win against Louisville. They scored a total of 62 points in that win against Louisville. He scored more than half his team's points. And he doesn't even step out to shoot the ball. He's just, he's a junkyard dog. I think he's like 6'6", 195. Um, we have a problem with rebounding. And here's a guy who's going to come in and push you around. 15 to 22 in that Louisville game. 15 rebounds. 
He had 22 in their win against Rutgers, and he missed their Butler game. So I think if he plays in that Butler game because he had the health and safety protocols, they probably win that game that they lost by four. Then he comes back after their first game, and he only puts in three, and the guy's still averaging 15, almost 16 points a game. I mean, if you back out that three, and I didn't do the math this time, he's probably averaging like 18 a game. So there's there are two guys on this team that can get you 20-plus on a given night. That scares me a little bit, and we're not giving DePaul enough credit, if you ask me. No, I'm sorry. I won't give them any credit. But you want some credit, Mike? Okay. As a team, DePaul ranks at top 40 nationally in free throws attempted and rebounding. So there's going to be something we need to keep an eye on. Additionally, they're 30th in the nation in block shots with 5.3 per game. So they, they seem got, they, to play they, big. Come on, they win it. They got three guys, three guys when you factor in Brandon Johnson that average over seven and a half rebounds per game. They have three guys in the top 10 in the Big East in that metrics. Our biggest detriment right now in terms of like analyzing one of the key components of what we do is keeping a team off the glass. We just got waxed by 15 in the last game out. And you're not concerned that the team that we're going to go on the road with that we might take for granted a little bit because it's the typical basement dweller DePaul, just they just vacuum up rebounds? You're not concerned about that at all. And yet somehow they're still winless in the Big East after four games. And somehow if you go down and break down all the wins DePaul's had in conference play over the last decade, you know, they have like 40% of them against us. I, come on. Not worried about it. It's a new year, Mike. I'm not sweating it. I, 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 think, you're on, team, I think you're sleeping on the Blue Demons, man. I think another on team I'm not sweating – and I don't even care about them anymore because they've I've lost all my hate for them. Theo John's no longer there. Color Me Bad's no longer there. Wojo's no longer there. Is Marquette? They're ten and six on the season. Two and three in Big East play. Shaka Smart is there in the first year as coach uh, in Big East play. Although you know he's been a coach previously. You want to talk about a young team? This is a young team, Mike. They've got nine freshmen and two sophomores on their roster, man. This is a heck of a young team, and it's led by freshman forward Justin Lewis. 15 points, eight boards, 1.4 assists. The only old man on the squad, Daryl Morsell, senior guard, 13 points a game, almost three and a half boards, two and a half assists. I mean, I, I I think you left some guys off here. I mean, there, there's Tyler Kolek who plays point guard for them. He was a he's a transfer out of I believe it was George Washington. No, no, George Mason in the A10. And right now he's leading the Big East at 6.2 assists per game. It's it's not flashy. I'm I'm going to give you a comparison. I think Tyler's got a little better of a jump shot than this guy, but I'm going to give you the the Doug Gottlieb comparison. Right? Oh, you, look, oh. you, you look at him and go, yeah, this guy's not going to beat me. You know, he, this guy's nothing special. And you look up at the end of the game and he's got seven or eight assists. I mean, Gottlieb almost, I think he led the nation in assists that year when Seton Hall lost to them in the Sweet 16. Kolek's one of those guys where he's just going to play that steady point guard for you. I think you got to force this guy to be a playmaker. When I watched their game against UConn, they did not have the playmaking guard play down the stretch in a close ball game. And RJ Cole took over. And if I'm not mistaken, Morsley was out that game, whether it was COVID protocols or an injury. If they had Morsley available 
and they had a little bit more of a playmaking ability from the backcourt, they probably beat UConn. And if they beat UConn, Tom, I'm sorry. They then have a home win against Illinois, neutral site wins against Old Miss and West Virginia, at Kansas State, and they've been hot in the Big East lately. I know they didn't get off to a good start, but they drubbed Providence by 32, and they dismantled Georgetown backing up the previous performance. They're a young team, but they're starting to play a high-tempo score in the mid to upper 80s the way that Shaka Smart wants to play. And I know you're going to want to pick on them at Texas. So go ahead. Take a couple shots for Shaka Smart at Uh Texas. No, I'm not (laughs) going to mess with Shaka. I like Shaka. I like Shaka a lot. But I'll tell you, it's interesting. Wojo got shown the door last year because he had a lot of success recruiting but he just couldn't produce victories, championships, and NCAA wins. So they hire Shaka, who has exactly zero NCAA tournaments at Texas, despite having 18 top 100 recruits in his six seasons there, including four or five stars, Mike. That sounds exactly Wojo-esque. That, that sounds like Texas has got a lot of money for their boosters to distribute over that time period. So, yeah, so hang on. there was an absolutely an influx of talent on the teams that he had. I think he had a, a three seed recently and bowed out early uh, in the NCAA tournament. But I don't think that the guys that were recruited to come play at Texas, even though they were top 100 recruits, are the kind of guys that fit the system and style of basketball that Shaka Smart wants to play. He has that, like, I'm going to keep on rotating in and out 10 guys that are going to push the pace and kind of run up and down and press you. And I'm, I'm sorry, let's be honest. Some of these guys that are the top 100 players, they have egos, they have NBA aspirations. They're looking about what's best for me and not best for the team. When he coached his best basketball at VCU, he had a program which guys bought in. Now, I think at Marquette, this could be the perfect fit for him. It's a level up in talent. He should still be able to get quality recruits. Not going to maybe get the top 50 guy all the time, but he might get the guy in that mid-range, you know, that 50 to 150 that is going to buy into the system, be a long-term college basketball, four-year system guy. And if you're not afraid of what Shaka's putting together already, Shame on you. Shame on you. I I think you've had too many beers already, Mike. You're talking out two sides of your mouth where you're talking about these top recruits are only in it for themselves. I'm going to remind you about that the next time you bemoan the fact that the next five-star or high four-star guy chooses a different school than Seton Hall. Stop it, Mike. You get talent (laughs) on your roster. You got to produce with your talent. I'm just, I'm just saying maybe he doesn't know how to coach to the talent that he had. Maybe that could be a knock on Shaka in itself. But I'm telling you, the type of players that he's now putting onto this roster, he had in that last game against Georgetown, nine guys logged double-digit minutes, and he had two other guys get eight and nine. He got 11 guys into his rotation in that Georgetown game against Providence. I thought I'm you sorry. could only play eight guys at a time, Mike. I don't understand how you can get so he, many guys' he, time. He did it again, Tom, in the Providence game. Nobody logged more than 29 minutes from his starters, which is fine. Justin Lewis and his point guard played 29 and 28 respectively. But he got, once again, nine guys into his rotation with double-digit minutes. He's going to push pace. 
So I, I look once again, Seton Hall is going to be playing a Thursday Saturday setup. They're not going to they're going to have traveled. It's going to be a long week. I get concerned that this could be a difficult finish for the Pirates on the back end of this Midwest road trip. I'm not saying it's not winnable. We'll get into predictions in a second. But I, if you're telling me that just flying out to the Midwest, coming off the high of these of these two games, they're just going to continue to roll through, pump the brakes a little bit. We these, are absolutely – the Midwest is ours, Mike. We rolled into Michigan. We won that game. The Midwest is now belonged to Seton Hall. So hopefully you learned a lesson like I started this podcast off with – what is your prediction for this coming week? Uh, I I think they're going to win two games. I I'm going to mush them. Here we go. I, yes, I do. I think this. I think this is a turning point for this team. They they're going to get everybody back. We didn't even talk about Alexis getting hit in the head with a basketball. Talk about some unfortunate breaks this team has faced early on in the season. But uh, it was precautionary. There's been no indication that he's going to be out for an extended period of time. I know COVID can hit you a second time. But let's just hope that the COVID gods are not going to you know, run through our team with illness throughout the entire year, regardless if Kevin Woods says we're good at getting sick. Let's just per- assume that this is behind us. The fluke injuries, the COVID. Yeah, I think that this UConn game was a springboard for what this team can do going forward the rest of the season, being at full strength and playing that type of basketball to their advantage. So, yes, I think they're going to go 2-0, but I would not be shocked if they played a close game at DePaul and had to kind of pull it out down the stretch, like they kind of pulled away from Butler. And if the Marquette game is not a bit of a trap game, I, I really do, Tom. I'm sorry, but not be shocked. You, you cover your bases. I think I they're going to go 2-0, I do. but I think they could also lose on the second game. I, I no just backbone. wish you I had no a backbone. backbone. I wish I you had a I backbone. <laughs> We're going 2-0. We're going to break back into the top 20 after next week. That's just all that's going to happen. You, you, don't, you don't think Seton Hall could be looking ahead that following Tuesday for the rematch? at full strength against Providence, that they possibly could take that game against Marquette for granted. They're tired. They're ready to get back on a flight and go home. And they're sitting there going, all right, we're better than this team. You don't think so? You no, don't think so? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's in this team's makeup. I think this team is, uh, so far from what I've seen with this team, they they just come to play game in, game out. They're, we, we've, we've seen it before. I think they're going to be fine. I think they're taking a 2-0 week. I don't think they look ahead to Providence. I think if they can go ahead and do exactly what you said, things are starting to line up nicely in terms of where they can position themselves in conference play to get back on track to challenge for a top three finish, or if not, a legit conference banner to hang. I mean, we don't want to jump too far ahead, but I like the matchup at home and the rematch against Providence. And then after that, you you told me you're, we're better than the Johnnies, right? You, you you love the you love the fact that we should probably sweep the Johnnies. After that, Tom, they they come home against Marquette again. Which if you're not going to take them seriously on the road, how are you going to take them seriously at home? And then they back it up with a game at Georgetown and a home game at Creighton. Tom, that puts them at ten and two Don't or do nine. It. You I, did this before, and we had a COVID pause, Mike. Stop this right no, now. Stop I, I, looking I'm ahead. I'm going to do it. One, two, no, three, stop four, it five, right now, six. Mike. Hang on. Hang I'm on. Gonna, seven, I'm going to. I got him. I got him at eight. No, all these favorable matchups because you don't take anybody seriously in conference oh, play. Man, they're it's got, they're it, ten and two. Just they're, mushed us. 
They're 10 and 2, and I'm inviting Xavier to the Rock, and then we're going back to Nova for the rematch, baby, in Philly. They really could put themselves on a nice little springboard of putting together a string of games here. And I, it might not be 8 0, you know, or, or 10 and 2, but whatever the situation is, this week could be pivotal to kind of getting on a bit of a run. And like I said, getting into that top 15, putting themselves in the top third of the conference standings for the rest of the season as they head into some big matchups down the line. But do not take the Golden Eagles and Shaka Smart for granted. That's all I'm saying. Well, you know what? I'm going to do what I got to do, Mike, because I've got a backbone. I put my name with my predictions, and I'm going to be sitting there while we're getting that 2-0 week screaming, Go Pirates! Okay, go Big Blue. Thanks for joining another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates, And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 